From 11FS, I'm Sam Mall, and this is Connection Interrupted. Connection Interrupted is a weekly show focusing on individuals across all walks of life whose plans and journeys were interrupted, disconnected, or rerouted. These are their stories told in their words of the obstacles they faced, the challenges they overcame, and the role technology played both as an instigator and as an instrument for positive growth and change in their lives. Today I'm speaking with my good friend Divine. Yep, just one word. A single name, but an apt description of this tireless entrepreneur. As Divine likes to describe it, his life story arc is from crack to rap to tech. Personally, I think William Jennings Bryan might have been picturing Divine when he wrote, Destiny is not a matter of chance. It's a matter of choice. It's not a thing to be waited for, it's a thing to be achieved. My friend Divine has overcome and achieved more in his lifetime than most people I know. This is his story. Victor Damon Lombard? Yes, my birth name. I, I don't. When's the that last thing? time anybody called you Victor Damon no, Lombard? Nobody calls me that until I got until I met Ben Horowitz. You know what I'm <laughs> saying? He, did he you know, call you Victor? Yeah, no, he didn't know. I'm saying because my story got put out there, and everybody wanted to know my real name, and it's Divine. That's my name. Right. That's what I've been known by. That's what I go by. It's, it hasn't hasn't been different since since my imprisonment. So you know? and you picked Divine. I, I, and we'll talk about how you came yeah, to the yeah. to the name of Divine. We'll get to that, but we got to start in the important stuff. All right, no doubt. Early influences in rap. What? What? So I remember the first time I was introduced to rap. Uh-huh. Rapper's Delight. My cousins Dana and David yep. introduced it to Rapper's me. Rapper's Delight. Well, do you remember your first time you heard rap? Yeah, man. First time I heard rap, man, I was living in the projects with my sister. It was Rapper's Delight. Seriously. Seriously. Rapper's Delight. Yeah, when you say the chicken tastes like wood. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Macaroni's exactly. runny. Exactly. Yeah, that no was the good. first you know, joint. I mean, I, that was really, really popular at the time. Yeah. So, I mean, that was like being played on radio, you know what I mean? In, in the community, in the projects, everybody was rocking it. That was my first exposure to rap right there. And See, I told you we got a lot in common. Nah, no we're we're going to freak no out doubt. over how much we have in common when we talk through this. Yeah. But, I mean, you grew up in Newport, Rhode Island. I grew up in Detroit. Yeah. Born and raised. My early childhood was um, shaped by Newport, Rhode Island, and then Providence, Rhode Island. You know, more of the city. Yeah. And then, then New York City. So here we go. So we're going we're gonna to constantly through your life stories, we're going to circle back. All right. And we're going right. to figure out how many things we have in common. Cool. So I grew up in Detroit. You grew up in Newport. Yeah. Right. Um, early stages when you were young, lower middle class, middle class? No, we was middle class. Some good middle class, yeah. right? Solid middle class, definitely. Because your dad was, uh, he was an entrepreneur of some sort, I he, think he, you said. He became an entrepreneur later on in life. He had, he had started out as, um, he worked on a bridge, on the Newport Bridge. I think it's called the Pell Bridge now. But um, he worked on a bridge, so he had a real, real solid employment. And he became a roofer and a painter after that. Started his own company. He was the first um, African-American or black person of color, whatever you want to use, um, so-called minority, whatever, in Newport to be, become really affluential. Um, he knew everybody. He knew, like, you know, he knew like, the local sheriff. He was connected to any and everybody. So um, he became um, real wealthy doing that job. This is uh, early 80s, late 70s, early 80s? No, nah, this was, um, like, the latest 70s. Yeah. Yeah, late 70s. 
Because yeah. we're about six years, and I'm 50, you're about mid-40s. Yeah, yeah, exactly. All right, so a lot of overlap there. So my dad was an iron worker in Detroit. Okay, yeah. So my We were mom, yeah. kind of middle class. We're lower middle class, yeah. but middle class. My father was a bridge worker. He worked on a bridge. And yeah. He was in the, he was in the, um, the trade of, 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 um, of roofing and painting. And, you know, that's a good way to make a living, actually. You know? Oh, now there's and, good money in that. Yeah, there's and, real good money in that. Because who he was, him being, him being um, African-American, he, he had dominated, you know, in that, in that, he had dominated that space being an African-American. He just had, a, I think he just had a, a business acumen and, and just a personality that allowed him to break the barriers. Because Newport is very, very racist. It's predominantly white. People there and, and, and the authorities there are very biased, prejudiced, and racist. You know what I mean? Um, but somehow my father was able to infiltrate that that um that that community of Newport, Rhode Island, and he became very affluential, and um he became wealthy over the years. Yeah, I grew up in Detroit, not racist at all. <laughs> right, <laughs> nah, man. Nah, you know. Yeah, not at all. Um, <laughs> yeah, it was yeah, it was funny how I grew up, right? Because I'm you know in my house again, uh, my cousins. We had talked about this. You know, my cousins on my mom's side are black, Jewish, American Indian, wow. Polish. Man, you take your pick, right? Wow, that's they got the, mix, they man. Got, yeah, they got the whole gamut going. Yeah, yeah, right. And uh, my aunt basically raised me because I grew up like you did, right? Middle class. But then in the 70s, my mom got multiple sclerosis, right? Oh, wow. Started so going blind. Yeah, they couldn't figure out why, right? Right, right. Um, and, and you go in the hospital for six months, you're broke. Nothing's changed, no, right? No doubt. Yeah. And so yeah. when you have a life change like that and you go broke, you go from middle class to nothing, that's a shock to the system. You did the same thing. The same thing happened to me, exactly. So yeah, it was an overlap right there. And it was your mom. Yeah, my mom's, yeah. Yeah. Yep. Yeah, due to my fa- my father's um, you know, extracurricular activities outside the household, you know, he was a womanizer man, you know, doing his thing, whatever. Broke my mom's heart, man. She had an emotional and mental breakdown. And my life abruptly changed, man, in a, in a matter of days. I come home from um Catholic school. I was going to private school. Because your mom was raised by nuns. My mom right? was raised by nuns, yeah. Exactly. New Bedford, Massachusetts. She was born in Tewksbury. So um yeah, so I come home, man, from um from Catholic school, you know, the whole dress code, shirt, tie, all that, shoes. Come home, man, and she's having like a like a house sale. Everything in the house must go. And she she you know, she packed up everything, man, and she left with this unscrupulous dude um named Sonny. She had met through my godmother. And um that kind of took her down that path, that dark path. She had never been never drank alcohol, never been a drug user. They didn't know, knew nothing about the streets or, you know, um, the quote-unquote black market and, you know, and you know illicit activity or illegal activity and living a criminal lifestyle. Knew nothing about none of that. And she got drawn into that. She um she went away to Lu- Lu- Leesville, Louisiana. And that's when my life, I went into the projects, man. And it's hard, man, when you grow up like that, because um, I'm kind of the same, right? I went to a private school. Yeah. So my friends around me had money, right? And then, you know, we lost everything. And... My grandfather was a doctor. He kept me in private school. But so I was the kid, I was a troublemaking kid whose all the friends had money and, and I faked it. They didn't know that I would go like, you know, two, three days without eating. Right. Wow. I was a skinny look. Well, you know. Well, right. I, oh, I, yeah, mean, I know the, no, I definitely know. No, you I you eat a lot of macaroni and cheese. We were joking yeah. about rappers delight. Yeah, yeah, exactly. But, but you know, egg noodles or, or elbow noodles don't cost nothing. Yeah, yeah. Ramen noodles. Ramen you noodles. You eat yeah. cheap. And, yeah. and it's like it's like the startup life. Yeah, <laughs> you know, what I'm saying? it's like the startup life. We were prepared for yeah, my yeah, young we were prepared, age. man. Yeah, we had no idea, though. You know, it's, no, you don't. And 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 your friends don't know, right? Yeah, man. I remember, you know, I remember, you know, back those days, you actually got food stamps, you know, the paper food stamps, you know, welfare and all that, and uh, they actually gave out 
blocks of cheese, bread, um, powdered milk, sugar. Those are like the staples. You got all that stuff, and we would we would make the, you know the, the the cinnamon and sugar you know toast. We'd make the we make the grilled cheese in the bottom of the bottom of the stove in the projects. You know, make the grilled cheeses with with the welfare cheese. We call it that big block of cheese. Like yeah, life was like you know the sugar water. You're not even having no Kool Aid mixer mix it in. So yeah, I've been through all that, man. You know, I know what it is. And abruptly too, though. To have to survive. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that that spun on you quick, and especially when you're a kid, because you were young. You were under 13 when that happened. Yeah, I was about 10 years old when that happened. So Um, my mom got MS when I was about 10 years old. Yeah, that's crazy. Yeah, we didn't have a lot of overlaps. I told you, it's weird when we look at it. Um, Two different spectrums of a. We 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 went down two paths though. Yeah, yeah. Right. So I I like buried myself in sports. Right. My dad was in a was in the Army Reserve, so he he took off and went to uh, El Paso. Right. But because of his private school, he let me live at home alone. Okay. Right. I had an aunt that was supposed to be watching me. Right. My aunt was now taking goes, money. Yeah. You know how that goes, right? <laughs> you, know goes. you think my aunt was watching me? My aunt was taking the money and just gone, right? right. right? Exactly. And I was just playing right. the whole time. But I was like you, because you never did drugs really until nah, nah, later never. in life. I mean, not weed, did drugs at all, right? No, nah, I, I mean I've smoked weed before, but I don't yeah. smoke weed. Like that's not what I do. I've drunk alcohol, but I'm really even, yeah. But even when you were young, I'm really not an alcohol drinker. No, yeah. when I was young, I did no drugs at all. I used to get teased. I used to get ridiculed actually and teased. Yeah, because I was the only drug dealer out there getting money that didn't drink alcohol or you know or, or smoke weed or yeah. do any type of drugs. Never. So you so, don't number one rule Biggie's. Ten crack commandments. Yeah, don't yeah. get high on your own supply. Yeah, never. Yeah, never yeah. touch your own supply. Yeah, right? never do that. So. And and we'll talk about it a little bit. So so, at a young age, right? You're in Newport. Yeah. Uh, life spins on you quick. Wow. And and like you said, your mom took off to Louisiana. Uh, you had a brother and a sister. Yeah, right? well, I actually have I actually have um, two sisters on my mother's side. On my mother. Yeah. And one brother. So there's four of us through and, my mom's. And were you the oldest? Or were you in the middle? I was the um, oldest boy. Yeah. It was me, my brother, Adrian. By my father, had the same father. Yeah. And it was my older sister Ellie, and my um, next older sister Kim. Two different fathers. Yeah, and people don't realize this, right? You're at that young age. You got to provide. I mean, mom's gone. Yeah, right? yeah, yeah. So, so what happened was, um, you know, I came home from Catholic school. Everything in the house being sold. It was, it was really, really, less, really, really. For me, it was just upheaval. Like I, I had, you know, it was abrupt, and 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 and, and the transition was just too too dynamic for me to grasp what was going on. I just knew that we were going with my sister. We were also living with a friend. And then eventually, I think like six months later, my mother got me and my brother a plane ticket and we flew down to Louisiana. And that was my first time experiencing being outside of Newport, but also not having the foundation of a solid a solid family life. So my mother started, she started getting involved with criminal lifestyle, um, illegal activity. Which part of Louisiana? Um, Leesville. So, oh my God, you talk about culture shock. You went from Newport, yeah, Rhode Island, yeah, to Louisiana, back nowhere. Yeah, Louisiana. back in the woods, like type thing. So I was like, it was like really crazy. I had to pick up the, you know, the living. The culture was totally different. Oh, yeah. from up north, because there's racism up north, and then there's oh, there's definitely. I've lived in the south yeah. my whole life. I mean, it, there's there's a oh, there's, slight difference. Yeah, there's some you know? racism down there still to this day. And yeah, so going to Louisiana. Yeah, a little bit. Yeah, yeah. So going to Louisiana, Leesville, Louisiana, it was a whole different culture from how people talked. Yeah. You know, and I was around more black people, if you yeah. would. You know what I'm saying? People, black people that weren't raised in middle class and black people that weren't indoctrinated to, to a white culture. A culture you hadn't been exposed to. Exactly. Like really, really black culture. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. And, and being down south. 
but but I but I but I felt you know as I look back at now look back at it now I see that I adapted pretty well. I've always been somebody who could adapt to different surroundings. See, which, another which, thing we have in common: people have called me a chameleon. Right? Oh wow, that's crazy! I can. I'd be with my cousins and right. I'd be fine and then I'd switch and be in that right. private school and it could be fine and right. I've done that throughout life. Right, and, 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 and crazy when we think about it, I've always um, been able to befriend Caucasian people. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? White people. Always, <laughs> no, seriously. Always, no, I'm laughing because my kids and everything, we're yeah. the flip. My wife's always laughing. We, we live down in Jacksonville, Florida. Yeah. Right, in my second marriage, I got two kids. All of the friends are black. And my wow. wife and my wife is from is from the deep south, right? Another and overlap. she's actually her best friends are all black, which is funny too. But she'd be like, every friend you have, we're playing on my son's birthday party right now, right? <laughs> right. It's Amir, it's Courtney, right? I mean, it's Jeffrey. Wow. And we're like, oh, well, we got we got to find some white kids. Yeah, yeah, right. <laughs> some white kids, yeah. which is a good thing, by we the way. Get some right? token white kids for the party. Yeah, we man. need a token white kids besides Eli. <laughs> That's funny. But yeah, it, it is strange. How how much your your early life affects you for the rest of your life? Yeah, but you you know what, Sam, man, like that's why I always knew I was like gifted. I always had this maturity about me. Yeah. And now that I look back at my life as as being young and going through what I went through, I realize that a lot of that maturity was innate. It was DNA intelligence. It was just it was just there. I had it. Yeah. Right. It was it was in me, and I always drew off it, and not even realizing I was drawing off it. I think you're either born with hustle or you're not. Trying to learn how to hustle, and we're talking about startup life, right? Right, right. yeah, exactly. You have the hustle in you or you're not. I, I, I don't think you can teach that, personally. Yeah, it, it, I think I think a lot of it comes from, especially for African-Americans in, 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 in the projects and those, in those underserved communities and um, low-income communities, is that it's all about the survival mindset, right? Yeah. We, we, we come up, we have the survival mindset about us. So when, you, when you're in survival mode, you're like you, you like you know. It's no holds barred. You do what you gotta do. You get it done. You make it happen. Cause if you don't, you don't eat. You know what I mean? Your family don't eat. <laughs> well, exactly. You know what I'm saying? Straight yeah. up. So, so my grind and hustle was really. I was motivated by not only that I need to provide food, clothing, and shelter for myself and my younger brother, because my mother had totally been lost to crack cocaine. And I lost a whole sense of a motherhood from and her. Your, and your dad stepped out of the and picture. My, my father was really never there. You know what yeah. I mean? I knew who he was. I knew of him. Right. He was like a legend in my mind, right? But yeah. he was never um, there for me from a fatherhood uh, perspective and standpoint. I was always like, yo, I, not only do I have to provide food, clothing, and shelter, you know, pay the rent, make sure the rent's paying paid, bring food into, into the house, get clothing. So if I did go to school, I had you know, some, some, um, some, some decent dress. But also, I wanted to get my mom's out the projects. I wanted to get her off drugs and out of the projects. And I, the irony of that is that I sold drugs to do it. Yeah, it's funny. I, I remember doing the same thing, right? I was going to a private school, not school uniform. So yeah, I, <laughs> I look back at it now. It's funny. I was going to Kmart and I was stealing clothes. Like I was good. Wow. I could shoplift like you wouldn't believe. Yeah, we man. shoplift too. I Sears. was doing the same thing. So yeah. there's another overlap. Yeah, there you go, yeah. man. I mean, all my clothes. You yeah. know, we used to laugh because I had the Skippies, the Skippies slip and slide exactly. shoes. Exactly. So back man, then, you know, hip hop gear was like you know the Shelto oh, Adidas, yeah. the the Pumas. Yep. So you know, we 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 actually go to Sears, steal the Pumas. We yeah. used to have the we used to wear the big bomber jackets. Yep. So he was able to stuff things inside the bomber jacket, and it, it didn't look like nothing was inside of it. Well, it was, it was so, easier it was for me. So I'm a white kid, right? Going oh, right, in with exactly. five T-shirts, right. walking out with two, and wearing the other two out. You know, yeah, it was, it was a high lot risk different for us. back then. High yeah. risk for us because, you know, we were, we were black, so. Yeah, a little bit different, right? You know, I was yeah, the kid yeah. that didn't look at, although I did finally right. get caught once. <laughs> but still, right? So, I mean, you know, you did what so, you yeah, did. So back then, we, you know, we rode BMXs back then. So, you know, the thing was, you know, they you know stealing parts for your BMX bike, or you stealing clothing so you could look fresh. 
when you go to school, you know, back then the word was fresh. You so, know, so. so what was that turning point? What Do you remember the, the first time you actually went out? What, what would it be, crack or weed? Or what was the first oh, thing you sold? Oh, we started, oh, it was, I'm glad you mentioned that because we, me and my man that I grew up with, his name is um his name is Denny, um, one of my best friends I grew up with. Me and him was actually started hustling together. So we were younger before we we, we graduated to crack cocaine and cocaine. Um, we was getting weed, so we buy a hundred dollar hundred dollar bag of weed, which is an ounce, for a hundred dollars. We buy that, we roll we roll that up into joints, and we like double our money. Yeah. So yeah. It basically, be like twelve, thirteen, hold. Oh man, I was um probably. Yeah, 12, yeah, 12 going to 13. I'm making that transition. Yeah. yeah. Probably like around 12 going into 13. And 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 without glossing over anything, you're learning how to run a business at that age. I mean, oh, really, yeah, when yeah, you look I back. Mean, yeah. I, I, well, actually, my father was always good with mathematics. My father was always good with business math. So all I ever did really to, 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 to massive my hustle, I would always look at the math of it. Yeah. Most yeah. clientele is tourists or who you sell nah, it to? No, nah, we, nah, we, we was in the projects. We sell it so to you're selling within the people projects. within the projects, yeah. yeah. And there were white people in the projects, so you know, but not, not many. Yeah. But there were white people in the projects, and we never considered them white. So what's crazy about- No, white, when you're poor, you're poor. When, that, exactly. That, that's Exactly, that. exactly. Yeah. So if you're white growing up in the projects around yeah. black people and Spanish people- you're black or you're Spanish. Yeah. You're not Racism white. Racism dies when you're yeah, poor. Yeah, exactly. We all poor, man. We all we Everybody's all do what we got to do. You know what I'm saying? You know what I mean? And, um, you know, so it, it was crazy, man. It was crazy. But that's kind of how I, I, I started hustling the weed. And then eventually when, when, when crack hit the scene, I got involved with these, these brothers, these older brothers out of, um, out of Providence, Rhode Island. They used to come down to Newport and hustle um, real, real strong. And I used to get dealer packs from them. I get packs of crack caps, crack capsules. Or vials, they called them. We're cracking them, and um, I started selling those. So people don't realize how much that changed. Yeah, yeah, they, life. Period. When yeah, crack man, came that, out, that man. Just, that they wreaked havoc all across the nation. I mean, if Newport, Rhode Island can, you can find crack cocaine in Newport, Rhode Island. Yeah, that tells you something. I mean, Newport is home of the jazz, the Newport Jazz Festival. Yeah, it's it's home of the Tennis Hall of Fame. It's home of the the the, the tall ships. It's home of um the America's Cup race. Yeah, I mean, really, th- let's think about it. Taylor, um, Taylor Swift has a home there at, to, to this day, right now. You know what I'm saying? This day and time. So Newport would be the last place you would think crack would, would the crack epidemic would be or crack would wreak havoc. Yeah, but I remember, uh, you know, parts of Detroit going through it. And yeah. you knew what the crack houses were. I mean, exactly, exactly. All across America, man. Yeah. So, you know, when you, when you think of Newport, Rhode Island, the nation's, it's known as the nation's first resort. Yeah. I said that tells you something how really how 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 entrenched the crack epidemic was throughout America. So you're about 13. So so how long are you dealing? About 13 and 19, if I remember right. Yeah, so yeah, yeah. I went. To, that's six years. I went man. to federal prison at 19. My first, my first. You went to juvie, right? Yeah, I did. Yeah, back and forth. I didn't want to and stuff like that. Like real simple. Yeah. Um, training school they call it. But prior to that, I had sold to an um, informant. I turned 18, but I did it when I was 17. So I got charged. They kept, they kept the charges as a juvenile. So I went, I went. I actually went to the juvenile facility at 18. And I only went there for nine months because I, I got out of it fast, quick. I got my GED. You know what you said, though? You were in a different interview. And I'm going to reference that interview in the show notes. It's yeah. like almost a two-hour interview, and it is outstanding, guys. I mean, I, I wrote it down on my notes. And I'll put it in the show notes for this. That one you got to listen to because it, it is just a great interview. But you actually said in that, that time in juvie was the hardest thing you'd ever 
yeah. been through. So, you know what's crazy? I haven't even listened to the interview since I did it. It is so good. And I did it like a month ago, like a month or so ago. You need to. So when it came out, I haven't really listened back to what I was saying. I know I was, it was very in-depth. Yeah. But yeah, now that you mentioned that, yes, that was the hardest time I ever did in my life was that nine months in, um, in, 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 in training school training school it's my first it, time being locked up that long so but I, it is training school isn't it i don't no, that's think what, that's people, what they call it here's where i get annoyed boys training right? school yeah i'm gonna get yelled at because my 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 liberal background's gonna come screaming out but it, it follows both of our arcs of our lives the the whole war on drugs right yeah In society so-called war on drugs yeah, yeah what a stupid flippant so yeah. you go to juvie and basically you learn a trade man you you learn how to do this when when you're not provided education when you're not provided programs when your schools are shit right what yeah. do you think you're gonna get when you don't invest in society and you don't invest in people yeah honest to god what do you think you're gonna people get make society right exactly. exactly people make society and their behavior dictates you know what goes on in society so Ex- so definitely they're thinking in their behavior actually yeah so yeah now it's, so you know i ended up getting my ged um it was crazy because i i because i had started selling crack and when i went there i was i was um 18 so mind you, I had been selling crack for like at least five years. I, I became really good at it, and so my my hustle continued on inside, inside, inside the, tra- the training school. Um, I would get bring cigar get cigarettes brought in. I sell the cigarettes. Um, I use the money to influence the staff to get extra phone calls. To, you know, get stay out my stay out my cell or my room because they lock the rooms at night. I stay out my room. So I did a lot of different things, a lot of hustling inside as well. But one thing I did, which I think was the greatest thing I ever did, was I I, I chose to enlighten and educate myself i started reading books and what was the trigger event for that because i'm curious because i'm an avid reader i read like crazy do you remember what it was that flipped you to want to read i was always i was always studious i was always a reader i remember i came i, I was raised middle class yeah so in, in my room one of the things in my room my greatest prized possessions was my desk my desk and in front of it was it was a uh it was um like a bookshelf that sat on on, on top of it so you see, I'm sitting at my desk. I look at my bookshelf, and I had all the books I wanted. And I always used to get the scholastic, scholastic little those, book. Man. You yeah, buy the yeah, books from yeah. school and all that. Yeah. So I used to always get the books that I wanted. And I used to, people don't know this, but I'm an artist as well. I draw. I used to take um, professional drawing classes when I was young. So um, what's crazy about that? So I always loved drawing. Dude, I'm a cartoonist, by the way. Oh, that's funny. We might more overlap. Man, this is yeah. scary. This is crazy. Yeah, I love to draw. But I'm, I'm gonna have a reader though, like you said. I'm gonna yeah. have a reader as well. I love reading. So um. I love knowledge, right? And I am, yeah. and I embrace, um, you know, seeking knowledge and getting knowledge. And I love, I love the research and study. And we was always taught that, you know, um, study is a reward to research, right? It's a reward to yeah. study when you do when you research something. Um, but it doesn't. And here's where I get annoyed, right? Because you can be incredibly smart, you can read like crazy, but that in itself, just just education itself, doesn't break cycles. No, not at all. Not not at all. No, so that was about, that's my next thing, right? Exactly. We, we, we dig into that. Um, you know, people think knowledge is power. Knowledge is not power. Knowledge holds the potential of power. Yeah. Right? It's, it's, it's the wise execution, application of knowledge that, that determines, you know, what knowledge can do for you. Knowledge, and we're definitely going to get to this later, but it, it, it's also people, right? There, right there's right. several, and we'll definitely get to that later. Oh, yeah, definitely. Yeah, that's but there are the multiple too, right? events, or there are multiple factors to helping people succeed. Oh, Knowledge is one of them. Exactly. As absolutely. a huge one. Absolutely. An environment is a huge one and people play a yeah. huge part of that. And we'll touch say, on all psychology of these. the 3C I think it's the 3C's conditions, circumstances and, uh, and um, choices. Exactly. The 3C's right psychologically yep. that determine where you end up and how you move through life. So anyway, so as a like I said as a child I had I loved reading. So I always had that reading thing in me. 
and I always like sought knowledge. So one day I was reading this um this Rolling Stones magazine about hip hop, and it's tied to um Islam, Nation of Islam, or uh, the Five Percent Nation of Islam, which is now known as the Gardens of Earth, and a lot of the rappers were part of were part of that. They were either part of the Nation of Islam or they were part of the Five Percenters, which was which is what it was called at the time. And some of those rappers were, were Eric B and Rakim, Poor Righteous Teachers, um, Just Ice, King Sun. And if you know, if you look at all those names, all those names are Islamic influenced, right? Or five percent of influence, or, or Nation of Islam influence. So they were kind of tying this and doing this Rolling Stone magazine uh, issue or, or article rather about this. So that intrigued me. Yeah. And what was even crazier, one of my friends I grew up with that I hustled with. He was actually in the adult institution and wrote me a letter telling me that he had met some five percenters from Brooklyn. And we'll go into that later. This is my connection to Brooklyn and New York City on a more spiritual, emotional, and mental level. But we'll get into that later. But um, anyway, I read this article and that kind of sparked me to want to learn more. So I, I then read Autobiography of Malcolm X, Game Over. Where were you when you read the book? I was sitting in training school. Okay, so you're in juvie. I was in my cell, yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, juvenile, yeah, juvenile. So, so that that's like the first inkling of a path, right? A, exactly. And, and mind you, I was raised in Newport, Rhode Island, yeah. predominantly white. Yep. Not really, not really in tune with quote unquote black culture. Well, we don't exactly teach that in school. Exactly. Well, we, they <laughs> you know teach what I'm it, saying? but they teach they teach the, they teach the bad aspects, yeah, right? The negative aspects exactly. of being a slave. But um, but anyway, to build to build on that. Now, this was my first exposure to really like black knowledge, right. like Islam from a black perspective and all these things was all new to me, but I was intrigued by him, especially because it tied into hip hop. Right. So I saw, I read the autobiography of Malcolm X. I looked at the bibliography. That's my favorite parts of books. I love the bibliography. Sometimes I get, I get a new book, right? I, I, do, I do two things. <laughs> I, go, I look at the contents. Before I even read, I look at the contents, of course, all the contents, chapters, all that stuff. And then I go right to the bibliography. You know what that is? That's old school um, surfing the web, right? right. Where you just get another link <laughs> exactly. and you go. Go to another yeah. link. I know. So, yeah, yeah. so all you millennials, man, that ain't new. Yeah. That's been around yeah. forever. Yeah, forever. Yeah, we've been doing that. We just did it, we just did it manually. You know yeah, exactly. We did the hard labor. So anyways, I went to bibliography and one of the, one of the books I, I, I believe that Alex Haley had put in that book, if I'm not mistaken, is uh, I think it's C. Eric Lincoln. C. Eric Lincoln, Eric C. Lincoln, um, his book on um, black Muslims. Or something like that. Anyway, that was my first book out of Autobiography of Malcolm X. I really dealt with black Islam um, ideology. And you're what, maybe 16, 17 now? When I was 18. I was, so you're yeah. 18 years old. I was 18 years old, old in training school, yeah. And then think about an 18-year-old, right? Um, you're at that point where you're trying to figure out who you actually are as a person. I mean, all 18-year-olds are yeah, about yeah, that yeah. age, especially when you're a, yeah. a guy. And you're trying to figure out your roots, who you are as a person. Yeah. And that's why you know, college has such an interesting yeah. influence on people. And that's what you're doing now is figuring out an yeah, identity. My identity. I'm peeling back my identity. And, and, and it's very, very rightfully so you mentioned that because I had grown up in Newport, Rhode Island. Like I, I had dealt with racism. So I was very aware of that. Um, NWA was one of my favorite groups at the time. So I was very aware of, you know, the police versus us. But when we look, when I looked at the police versus us, I didn't look at it. I looked at it somewhat in, in a black and white fashion, but more so I looked at it in a criminal authority fashion, right? Law, law, law enforcement and criminal. That's how I kind of looked at it more so. And But then the undertones of racism were always there, always there. Me saying undertones, but really 
it was overt, right? Because I'm in a predominantly white town, city that a lot of people, most people are prejudiced, biased, and all that, right? Police brutality, where you think it would not exist. But anyway, in, 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 a large, in a large level of poverty. Well, this is way before the times we live in now, right? We're a mobile right. device. You got the camera. Exactly. You got it. And we're, exactly. we're, we're peeling onions in the U.S. where we're like, yeah, we're way beyond that. Come right, on, right. man. Yeah, no, man. that's crazy. It's crazy. So those are the things that shaped me early on. And hip-hop played a big, big, a big, big role in shaping my self-identity. Because even before, like, the books and all that, I would get the knowledge from KRS-One, right? He would teach about um, black knowledge um, all the time, African heritage, of African-Americans tying to Africa. Like all these things were talked about in the music. And I was actually listening to, quote unquote, 5% music from rappers that, you know, poor righteous teachers. They were so-called 5 percenters. Um, Eric B and Rakim, another, um, you know, so-called 5 percenter. So I was listening to the music and getting the knowledge through this music. So that was my first contact with it. You know what I'm saying? My first contact was that. And then that time in New York heavily because I loved hip hop so much so I learned about New York and I really had a strong affinity for New York at a young age because of hip hop you can cause a father be loved I'm in my crime zone rhyme drones don't hesitate to leave a nine blown divine no right a poem and rhyme out at times my mind spasms in the booth body dudes call it live in the crime lab it's New York City still I smooth talk with it to move on quickly call me New York gritty the pride stays they fastened out to my sons at the base of the great pyramid throwing my ashes out I'm a rhyme to the end of my time Infinite crime, uh-huh. deep thoughts to keep a New York minute in mind. Uh-huh. Spit it for dimes and thug dudes that love what guns do. Uh-huh. On the corners where they paper group, making drugs move. Yeah. I'm back. So it's interesting in your life though, because you got like parallel lives going on. You're still dealing, and you're dealing at 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 a at a, a decent level now, right? Because you're moving oh, yeah, up a yeah, kilo oh, yeah, level. Yeah, yeah. You're oh, moving yeah, coke. definitely. Yeah, I, did, I got to the kilo level yeah. without question. But you're also discovering. I'm, I'm going to say the spiritual roots and, and ethnic roots. At yeah. the same time, think oh, about my what identity, you, yeah, my yeah. identity in America and beyond. Did you feel, this is a hard question, I want you to reflect on it. Did you feel kind of torn at the time? Because it's, do you feel like it was two different lives or is it just a mesh? Nah, you, you know what's so ill about it? Like, like, like two things about me, I I'm, I'm, I'm always was able to adapt, to adapt the mass of my surroundings and my, and my circumstances and situations. The other thing, I was always mature for my age. Even though I, when I was 13, I was hanging with 18-year-olds. I was, I was, and I've always been a leader. That's another thing I really never really mentioned in my, in my podcast or other interviews I've done. I never really mentioned how much of a leader I was. I was always ahead of my time. I was always above and beyond my age, hanging with people that were older than me. So I was very mature. And also, I was, um, I was a leader. I never was a follower. And I set a lot of trends where I, where, I, where I, you know, being born in Newport, I set a lot of trends there. I was the first dude with, you know, with the with the big Motorola phone. I was the first dude doing the drug sales on a on a pager. I was the first dude, you know, at 16 years old, I had, you know, I had a $50,000 car. I had a Volvo 740 GLE, right? Um, first one with a, with a car phone in it. You know, when you had to carry like a like a like a knapsack, you know, like all these things, like these things. I said trends. And this, is this where it's, and this is where it's funny, right? Because people look and say, yeah, but you make choices in life, which, yes, you do. And Absolutely. you already mentioned that, Absolutely, by the way. Yeah. But when you're young like that and you're having to make choices, we talked about this, right? Oh, yeah, My choice yeah. was go work in a factory in Detroit or go in the military. Right. That's why I went in the military. Exactly. Because there was no way I was going to go work in a factory, right? right? But it's a choice. And it's the same with what you had. It's fascinating how it comes to a head quick at 19, though, right? Because, I mean, you've done time, but you haven't done time. Yeah, exactly. No, that, yeah, exactly. <laughs> that, first, that first nine months, they actually gave me um, what they call further order of court. 
um, FOC, yeah. which means they could have held me till I was 21. So I could have been there for three years. But you learned how to network and hustle. But I learned how go. to work the system. Yes, you did. How did I, I use my, my intelligence. So that gives you, that shows you the level of my intelligence at a young age. I knew what I had to do. I, be, I had befriended the staff. And I even got, I think I went back for my court review in three months after I was locked up. The judge couldn't believe it. He's like, there's no way. I had people from the training school, staff from the training school going to court, testifying on my behalf. Saying, yo, he's, he's, he's rehabilitated, he's changed. The judge didn't go for it. He said, go back and get your GED. And so my next court date was six months later. And that nine months total, I got my GED, went back to court, and I got out. And boom, that's when I set my mind on, yo, it's time to really blow this drug game up. I started plotting how I was going to get back in the drug game, get to a kilo, and do my thing. And I did it. Gets back to basic math, right? You can, you can work it out to say, here's what it's going to take. Basic math. For me to get there. Yeah. And, um, and how was how your family life at that time? Is your mom still struggling? Yeah, my mother's still on, still on drugs. Man, she's dealing, hard, she's, she's dealing with what she's dealing sucks. with. And that's why I dropped out of school at 16. I, yeah. I was in ninth grade, high school, and I just couldn't, t- I couldn't deal with it, man. I was trying to go to school while I was hustling. Yeah. But just the home life was just too, too overbearing. And I think those are the times that I, I could see where I was struggling with. Yeah. The emotional point, like what you were speaking of, like going through that self-discovery and all that. Like I really, I really didn't have that too much weighing on me. It was more so I was just going with the flow because I loved hip hop and because hip hop tied into self-identification for African-American males, especially in the US, I kind of got that. Yeah. Because it was hip hop. It was easy transition and understand all that. But the home life, just my mom's being on drugs, the emotional... But you tried to Told. address it, right? You got out and you yeah. were, you set her up, were li- was living with her. Because yeah. you did the opposite of me. Yeah. When I was 18, I fled. I went in the military. I mean, my mom went through massive uh, depression yeah, with, exactly. with yeah. MS, yep. right, which is normal. Of course. But then she pulled herself out of it. And, and we love our moms, right? Of course. We, we love, love our moms, moms, man. Nah, you don't do anything love to moms. moms, man. Um, I'm sorry. My, you know, Number one for those that listen right to there. us, I hate to break this to you. My dad was an asshole. Um, yeah, but too. he also stayed. The thing with my dad, though... He was an ass, or he, he's still alive. He's in a home up, up in, in uh, Michigan. Yeah. But he was an ass. But he also stayed with my mom, right? Oh, Through okay. all that crap. Wow. And I, I can't disrespect him for that. No, you can't. So no, he much, held it down. Yeah, he did. He, he, stayed there and held he it worked down. two jobs. He worked his ass off. Wow. And I was the jerk. I went to the military and just took off, right? Yeah. I fled from it. You got out and immediately set her up. Had the house yeah. going. Yeah. What's fascinating. Well, it comes, carpeting. Yeah. yeah, yeah but it comes crashing down in six months. Yeah. That's rough. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it was crazy. So it happened. The f- so the first time I come home and I always looked out for my mom's like money, you know, family, whatever they needed. I, I had bread. And I was always like, I was never, never selfish with my money or stingy with my money. Never greedy. You know what I'm saying? Definitely, definitely um, helped a lot of people out over the years. So I come home and I'm just determined to get to this kilo. Like that was my focus. That was my drive. So at first I'm like, Yo, I'm going to do things right. You know, I'm going to do things the right way. And I'm going to get a job working nine to five and I'm going to save my money. And I'm going to get a car and, you know, and work and all this other stuff. You know, because I have my son at 16. Yeah. So my son's about two years old. But as soon as I hit those streets, man, I'm like, you know what? I got to get a kilo. Straight up. So I went to my man. I said, yo, let me, um, let me front a 16th, um, which, which is a 1.6 grams of, of cocaine. Um, let me front that. And, you know, let me do what I do and I'll get you back the money. I think they were going for like... Like $90, $100 at the time for the 16th. So when I got the 16th, I cook it up. 
which I'm cooking it up into base cocaine, not crack. So for listeners that don't know, you've moved way beyond now. Now you're your own factory because you're cooking right. your own. And that's a, that's yeah. a step when you're yeah. doing that because you're just not buying off a supplier at this point. Yeah. You're seriously in the game. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm getting weight. Yep. I'm weight. So I had I had so I had already been went through all those different levels of elevating as a drug dealer. Yeah. But now I was coming home. I had to sell my car. I come home with nothing. I had to start over. So I said, okay, let me start from a 16th. 16th turns into uh, a ball, which is three and a half grams of powder cocaine. Did that. Then I had seven grams, three, 3.5 3.5, seven grams, seven to 14, 14 to 28, 28 to 56. Okay, we're talking serious you know money saying? now. Now we're so up now around I'm elevating. Uh, 50 grand. So, so yeah, so we're 60, elevating. Yeah. So, so what, what happens, though, here's what happens. Um, the cocaine was being cut 50%. So when I cooked up the 16th, I couldn't double my money or triple my money. I only got my money back because it didn't right. cook up all the way. Half of it was 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 cut. So when I so I was like, yo, this is garbage. I can't I can't rock like this. So I ended up going to Central Falls, which at the time was known as um the cocaine capital of New England, because it was a six by six square miles, right? Mm-hmm. Small city, um, and flooded with Colombians. Medellin cartel, Cali cartel members. Well, flooded this this area. So this is early nineties, mid nineties. This is this is this is um, this is like yeah, early nineties. Yeah, this is what it was. Early nineties, really yeah. crazy. Yeah, so boom. So it's almost like the second the second wave of the crack epidemic. Right. You know what I'm saying? The first wave was just crazy. Yeah. In the eighties, eighty six, eighty five, eighty six. Yeah, That's exactly. When you're in, just a collie. It's yeah. A, yeah. It was like the second wave, right? Yeah. Like, so I come home. The real wave, yeah. by the way, everybody yeah, yeah, yeah. that we helped create. Just just to let everybody know, when we took Pablo Escobar out. And we were heavily involved in that from a government standpoint. Right. We opened the floodgates to yeah. the cocaine that traffic in the U.S. That was it. Because remember, yeah, remember, it was like, yeah, it was situated in Miami. And it would travel from Miami to New York. Bam. Now it was all like yeah. the West Coast, East Coast, yeah. everything in between. Um, So the Colombians were there. So I got a Colombian Connect, started buying from them. But what I realized is I, as I elevated in weight. I'm buying 14 grams, you know, ounces and all this stuff. You ever scared, by the way? I got I to gotta ask that because you're dealing with the Colombians. They were nuts. Oh they yeah, nah, the Colombians were crazy. Were you, nah, were you ever scared? No, nah, I never had no 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 negative situations. I just did I, I just did what I did. Okay, you know what I'm saying? I just did my thing and made it yeah. happen. So I got, I got the Colombian connects. So those were ones with the, with the pure with the more pure cocaine. But what happened was when I'm cooking it, it's still coming back half. Yeah, I'm like, yo, they cutting it all across the board. That's what's going on. I got to get to the source. So I was thinking like Frank Lucas. Yeah, I got to go to China. Yeah, you know what I'm saying? I got to go to Colombia. That's what I was thinking. So my close, my close to Columbia, than the Columbia that was in Central Falls, was was actually New York City. So I ended up getting a link to go to New York City, and that was game over right there. That's what set me. What got you caught? Over. Did you, was it an informant? What was it, the deal that finally did it? It was an informant. You know, greed. Me, me doing, me doing deals I didn't have to do. With somebody you didn't know, my, or yeah, well, just... through somebody I knew that they didn't know yeah. that person. At the end of the day, you know, it was negative. I don't glorify what I what I've done in life. In, in dealing drugs and um and the life I lived in, you know, living a criminal lifestyle and doing illegal activity, I don't condone none of that. I don't I don't I don't glorify none of it. It's just my particular experience yeah. and what I dealt with in, in life, man. So how much time were they gonna cause at this point now, you're an adult, they can throw federal time at you and let's see, mid nineties, so they're all about the drug wars now. Yeah. So how much time do they wanna throw at you? Well, um Do you remember? Yeah, so what happened the night before I got I got um arrested I just didn't feel something wasn't right. I just got back from New York, had a bunch of cocaine, um, and I just felt something was off. Yeah. 
and you I had feel the, it in the air, yeah, right? I could feel, I could feel it in the air, it. like yeah, I could feel yeah. it in the air. Something wasn't right. So I had these guns in the crib. I said, yo, let me get these guns out of here. I'm about to do a big deal the next morning. Lo and behold, it was with the, the undercover police detective. Did you get the guns out? Because man, that on top I got the, of that, I got the you guns out. I got dead. the guns out. Brought them to my man's house, who was actually do, helped me do the deal. Who connected me with the individual that connected us with the with the with the yep. with the police detective that was undercover. I'm claiming to be someone from out of Florida coming up from Florida buying drugs, um, which I was always suspicious about him from the door, which I'll explain some things about that. But um, what happened was uh, I, got the, I got the guns out. I brought them to my, my man. Who was, he was a former military, which I got the guns through him. And some of the guns were in his name still. So I brought the guns to his house. So the next morning when we got arrested and got, you know, got raided, we went down to make the, make the deal. Cops grabbed him first. I went around. Local cops, DEA. What level? It was local cops at first. Okay. Local cops, but they were, um, but they were connected to the um to the to the fed, federal yep, there federal you go. government. They work with the feds or whatever the case may be. So what happened was um, they tried to charge both of us for the guns and the drugs, you know. So they tried to offer me eleven years. They end up dropping the guns because remember the guns weren't in my possession. Right. They were right. my man's possession. They trying to charge us both. Um, because there's an enhancement for having guns around drugs in the feds. Oh yeah, federal um, federal sentencing guidelines or the federal laws. Anyway, um, they ended up just giving us both seven years, eighty four months. Dropped the guns, charged with the with the, with the drugs. So seven years time. How much will you serve in seven years? It's eighty five percent in the feds. Okay, but I got charged under the draconian uh, crack law at the time, which was like at the time was a hundred to one. So if you're caught with powder cocaine, a gram of powder cocaine, that's considered um, hundred, hundred grams of powder cocaine. So that's serious time. Because you saying, have crack, basically. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So I got hit with a mandatory minimum five years due yeah. to my past criminal history. Yeah. But I was locked in the, in the juvenile for yeah. which I served my time for, which is almost like je- double jeopardy, but 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 it's, re- it's really not because it's, it's federal law. And what people don't realize is that this was during the time that the federal government were using actually pharmaceutical drug laws. And they were and they were and they were um, using them against more lower level. Yeah. But when I went in, I wasn't considered lower lower level. When I went in, there was like nobody from Rhode Island in federal prison. You know what I'm saying? I went yeah. in like during like we're still white collar type criminals there. You were going in when our incarceration rate jacked it's up. About the, exactly. Right. So here's what they started doing: they started leveraging those laws against low level drug dealers. That's right. Yeah. And that caused an influx. And that's you know when prison became a business. Um, right, and it's been a private year. Yeah, corporations today, started getting way, into it, but but yeah, I mean that's when it really took off. So there's a lot the of things US. going on that during that time. Yeah, a there lot are of things going on. So the judge told me basically when he sentenced me, had nothing, had it had there was no um, mitigating factors such as this is my mother's drug addiction right. and my childhood growing up didn't didn't matter. How's your mom handling this? By the way, she's still doing drugs. She's at the still time? doing drugs. Yeah, she's no, still so doing drugs. So that's but hard. You don't mind you? I have I have I have I had a girlfriend. Yeah. I plan to marry. I have my son. Yeah, yeah. He was two years old. It's tough. So it was real crazy at that time. But the judge said to me, um, "Consider it like going away to college." And you did, by the way, because we're going to talk about that next. Yeah. Um, yeah. Because uh, again, remember we reflect on this. You were talking about. Um, you read the autobiography of, of Malcolm X. You, right. You're getting kind of down that spiritual journey and, yeah. and where you're coming from. So now you're doing medium security, but but prison. And you're in Kentucky, right? Isn't that yeah, where you said Kentucky, you went? Yeah, yeah with I the love Kentucky, that. Ashland, Kentucky. Yeah, that's, Imagine that's, that. Yeah, no. The only thing I knew about Kentucky was fried chicken. <laughs> yeah, that's to <laughs> me. That's mean? just funny, right? Yeah, that's, that's like added punishment. We're going to take you out of New England and make you go to prison in Kentucky. Right. But but when you went off, 
with your mindset and with your hustle, did you just say, all right, now I, I am, I'm going to educate, I'm going to, I'm going to read, I'm going to set forth. Was that part of the plan? Absolutely. So it kept back going in my mind what the judges said to me, consider it like going away to college. Right. So I'd set in my mind early on that I was going to turn this experience not into, into prison. I mean, I would not from a prison into, 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 into college. Right. That's what I was going to do. I was going to make it my, my educational University, or you know what I mean? I was gonna yeah. turn it into that, man, and that was kind of like like my mindset. So what happened was before I actually left to the feds, I was held in a state um, prison, and that's where I met a brother from the Nation of Gods and Earths, Five Percent Nation, as he, as it was so called. Um, and I was told I would meet him from from my brother. I told you I grew up with selling drugs. Yeah. that was in the adult institution when I was in the juvenile. Wrote you the letter. He wrote me yep. exactly. He told me he told me I was gonna meet this brother from Brooklyn, New York. That was a five percent. His name was Understanding, and that was and that was the meeting that sparked me on the path towards spirit, high level spiritual development and walking down the path of of the five percent nation and nation of gods and earth and learning through that through that school of thought and that ideology. So you're in prison, right? Um, how, how long did you serve that time? Um, well, I was being held, so to, I was going to the feds. Right. I was on, held so, on the, so feds, on the state charges. This. Feds came in, charged me federally. I was arraigned in the feds, but I was being held in a state state prison. Yeah. So I was there for a year, from 92 to 93. Then I got sentenced, and then that's when I left. But in that year, I met Understanding from out of Brooklyn, which you call Brooklyn Medina. Yeah. Um, relative to Medina in, in, the, in the Middle East. Right. Anyway, um, I met Understanding. He sparked me into these lessons and these degrees, as we call them, into the five percent nation, nation of gods and earths, and I started studying from there. Um, when I went into the feds, remember there was nobody from Rhode Island. <laughs> yeah. It was all New York, New York cats. Yep. And I already bonded with New York already, so I, I started you know, running with the New York cats, Brooklyn specifically because that's where the brothers who taught me or their lineage. That's where it comes from out of Brooklyn, which we call Brooklyn Medina, as I was saying. That being said, I, I ran with nothing but New York cats throughout my entire bid, mostly Brooklyn dudes because of my connection to Brooklyn. Where my knowledge come from, Brooklyn, Brooklyn. Where my thoughts come from, Brooklyn, Brooklyn. Where I get love from, Brooklyn, Brooklyn. Five bros get it done, but Brooklyn, Brooklyn. Since the start of my talk, they wonder am I part of New York? The way it started up in the parks, first spark of my thought. Though as long as I dealt there, I was born elsewhere. Mighty drive with the guards, huh? Got nines of self there. But think the guards put me on, I said it before. So where I'm from and where I'm at, I don't stress it no more. Matter of fact, just looking back, it was a D from the door. And then YC at 19 with keys to that roll. When the fence came, they said I was ahead of my game. Took their best steam in for seven years, dead in my brain. Never ended there with the skill would do when the bit was through. I'm out in that Brooklyn Zoo with my cool of a cook or two. Hard body, guard body, scheming, looking for loot. Garments, hoodie, jeans, suits, and them Timberland boots. Wasn't long. Anyway, I said I was the mindset to educate myself. I knew I couldn't come back home at the, in the same place that I left. And I at least had to be, be up to speed where everybody was at when I returned or above and beyond. So this is where this gets to me. <laughs> this is where they make the movie, right? This is the pivotal point in the book. So yeah. you're, you're, you're in prison, you're reading like crazy, you're educating yourself yeah. on multiple levels. Yeah, right? yeah, the spiritual definitely. level, like you said. Yeah, business. You, yep, you, you're, you're building up a network from Brooklyn, you're doing all this. Yeah. And then you, and you're reading Entrepreneur Magazine, which I love the shout out you give to them, right? They, they should like run you for their ads, but yeah. you're reading Entrepreneur Magazine like crazy because you actually been one. Yeah. And you flip to this article about this Jewish guy who works with Mark Andreessen 
right? Ben Horowitz, yeah, ben, who yeah. likes rap. Yeah. It was the rap in the title that kind of caught you. Yeah, yeah, right? he loved yeah, he loved hip hop. He loved a lot of artists that I that I love. So And and did you really believe that or did you think it was hype? No, nah, initially I thought it was just a publicity stunt, right? Yeah. I thought it was PR. So I didn't I didn't but I was intrigued by it. I'm like, okay, you no forty know, something year old white gentleman, Jewish, billionaire. In Silicon Valley, and yeah, Ben capital. Horowitz does not look like he likes rap. By the nah, way, no, not at he all. Looks, not at all. He looks like Ben Horowitz. Yeah, um, <laughs> easily. Yeah, exactly. So that being said, that's what intrigued me. But actually, that took place five years ago. Yeah. So, so we fast forward from when I first went in in 1992. Right. Fast forward now. We're talking um 2011, 2012. That's a jump. Yeah, so that's where we're at with the Ben Horowitz when I started being entrepreneur and all that. Yeah, I was hundred percent dissatisfied with my life, and I kept, you know, I kept dealing with recidivism in and out of prison for thirteen years of my life, and I just got it's tired of it. It's, it's a cycle. It's just a cycle, exactly. man. You, you you go in, you get out. You go in, you get out. Yeah, we so, had talked about this with the depression from that. Yeah, the idea of letting people down. That's what you know. What I love about you though, the hustler in you, you never quit. So nah. even that. So even though that nah. cycle happened. And, and it did, right? You went back yeah. in, you came out, you went back in, you came out. Yeah. You always went back to the life. Yeah, there's this kicking point. Because, we again, we talked about, remember the three C's, right? Your choices that you do. Choices, yeah. And your character and your community, yeah, right? Yeah, yeah. I'll, I'll develop who you are. Yeah. And at no point did that totally engulf you to where you were lost, right? Nah. I mean, I've always been somebody who could who, who persevered. I'm, I'm, I've always been resilient. And I've, I've never been afraid. Like, even though I knew there was, even if I came out of prison, right, and I knew there was harsh federal crack laws, right. I still went back to selling crack. I still went back to selling kilos. Yeah. I just knew, okay, I can't, I ain't going to cook it no more. I'm just going to use powder. So, right. you know what I mean? I get caught again, I, I'm good. But I always, I never had this fear about me. I never was afraid to leave Newport. You know what I'm saying? I was yeah. never afraid to leave Rhode Island. I was in Philadelphia, New York, you know, traveling on my own, making drug deals, making drug moves. You know what I'm saying? I was one of the first dudes to ever do that. You know what I'm saying? To, to, to venture venture beyond yeah. Newport and venture, venture beyond Rhode Island. Anyway, um, so I've always been like really, really courageous, a courageous type of dude um, and not non-fearful. But anyway, so so five years ago, I just knew that, I just knew that I was, I've always knew that I was wiser and much more intelligent than incarceration and illegal activity. You know what I'm saying? And living a criminal lifestyle. I, I knew I was. But I was like so dissatisfied, like I have to find another way. But it's like, hard, Yo. man. When you let's let's be honest though. I mean that I, I agree with you, right? And you've lived this. It's a hard cycle to break because you come out every time you put anything on an employment letter, you gotta put down felon. Exactly. Right? Exactly. Every time you carry that with you, you know, I'm I'm gonna go incredibly old school. There's a book by Paul Bunyan called Pilgrim's Progress, which is this big Christian uh book that was written in the renaissance period but the whole thing is this guy carrying a burden on his back yeah the boulders right and he carries it everywhere with him and until he learns to let that go and he, what he didn't realize is he had the power to let it go it's an interesting metaphor it's it's a fascinating one man you're talking one that's what 600 years old right in wow. that book but what he learns is he could have taken that off but he carried it with him you know, in the Christian Bible, it talks about that. You drag your old life around and you desperately don't let go of it. And there comes this point in, in your life where you do make that choice. Am I going to let it go? When you talk about the spiritual side, dude, I was going to be a preacher a long time ago. Oh, yeah, so we, yeah, we yeah. got, you know, I'm, nah, going, nah, I'm going there I with love you. Spirituality. But, but it is that idea of you drag it with you. It's so hard to let that go and to let your past go. And people that can accomplish that and figure that out, I have so much 
respect for, man. It is because it's so hard to do, but it's fascinating what the trigger events are for that to break that cycle. You know? Well, yeah. There's a few things that that in, in, within what you just said. The first is um, human experience, right? Living, we're here living. This is our human experience, and it, it's it's full of trials and tribulations. It's struggle, it's stress, it's pain, but it's also love, joy, and happiness, right? So that so you have both sides of it. You have the best of life, and you have the worst of life that you have to go through, right? So that that metaphor is so ill because it's about carrying that that struggle or going through that burden, yeah. right? And then you realize you have the power to overcome them, and that's a challenge of human experience. And then also deeper than that, we look at um, um, human ability, the human potential to overcome those things. Once you put your mind to it and once you realize, you know what, I can do this and I can do that. And that's kind of like the breakthrough that, 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 that an individual would have. So um, that's deep because that's what I went through. I was just so dissatisfied, 100% dissatisfied. And until you're 100% dissatisfied, no change occurs. The only time you can break a, a, negative, um, a negative psychological cycle Something dynamic has to happen. The dynamic for me was, first of all, being 100% dissatisfied, which set me up to say, you know what? I'm going to make a different choice. And my choice was I love hustling. I love the grind. I love, I love making money. It's addictive, man. Right. I yeah. love making money, right? Because it, it, you know, money is power in this world, as we know. Um, and it affords you to live your life at an optimal level in every way. Right? And that's what it's about, right? That's what money does. It's a tool to do that if you can use it wise enough. So anyway, that being said, I'm like, yo, I'm, I'm going to become a serial entrepreneur. So I'm reading Entrepreneur Magazine. I'm reading Inc. But Entrepreneur is really one of my favorites. I'm reading Inc. I'm reading um, Robert Kiyosaki's um, Rich Dad, Poor Dad. I'm reading um, uh, The Richest Man in Babylon. I'm reading uh, Think and Grow Rich by Napoleon Hill. Like these are the books I'm reading. This is where I'm putting my mind. And I'm really, really determined to do this. Remember, when I was determined to get the kilo of cocaine, nothing could stop me. I wanted that kilo. I got it. But I also got prison time with that. And there was always a high level of, of risk versus a small reward or a temporary reward for temporary gratification. Now I was trying to flip it to say, okay, how do I make it a high level of reward and little to no risk? The only risk is my own trials and tribulations of trying to succeed. Right, the own as we say, blood, sweat, and tears of trying to trying to excel, build a company, build a startup, or be entrepreneurial. But I was always entrepreneurial thinking, and everything I've done. There's many parallels of the drug trade to the entrepreneurship and building a startup, right? And I had I and I possess a lot of transferable skills that I could bring into entrepreneurship and building a startup, and that's what I did. So when I read about Ben Horowitz. I was intrigued and I really was skeptical, but I put in my mind that I'm going to meet this guy. And I said, I'm going to ask him to invest in my music company because he loved the same artists that I loved. Um, and he loved hip hop. People don't understand the value of networking when you're not doing it selfishly, right? When there's actually a joint interest, right? You know, people don't get that. And, and when you hustle, you do understand that, right? Right. It's okay to ask when you've given, 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 given. It's not okay to go right in and say, Hey, Ben Horowitz, I need your money. It's okay to find the commonality and build a relationship up. And it's fascinating how you did it. You did it on Twitter. Yeah, that's that's just see. Yeah, hey, Twitter, Twitter, we found a use for you, man. Yeah, Dan I, Costello. We, it was, we, was we interesting. I met, I met him in, in March of 2014. I had just performed in February in Hollywood, California, with Rakim. Not performed with Rakim. I actually performed in the same 
show. Right. That Rakim was performing. He was headlining. Because you're focusing on music, right? Right. Now. I was doing, yeah, dealing yep. with music. So I basically graced the same stage that night as Rakim. First time ever in my life. Largest audience I ever performed in front of. Killed it. So that was that was just a, you know, a notch in the belt. You know what I'm saying? Yep. A feather in the cap, if they, as you as, as 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 they say. So anyway, I had just performed with him, and I was telling Ben I just came home, and I said I read about you while incarcerated, and he was like, "Welcome home." And I said, "You know, I just performed with Rakim, sent him a picture." He's like, "Yo, that's crazy." The fourth letter, eighteenth letter. So Ben knows the history of Rakim, there right? You he, go. That's one, yep. one of his favorite artists of the time. So anyway, so we so there was automatically a commonality, right? Yeah. It was a common denominator. Boom, we connected. The emotional connection was made because of the commonality. Yeah. We both loved hip-hop. Rock him. And he's, he's not faking it. If you don't believe me, folks, go on YouTube, look up South by Southwest, and watch Ben Horowitz interview Nas, and look at Ben's face the entire time. He looks like he's a four-year-old kid. He cannot contain himself being on the stage with Nas. Word, you word. can't You can't hide that. Nah, Ben Ben loves hip hop. Yes, he does. And Nas is one of the greats, man. You know what I'm saying? Oh, Nas is. Is, is was one of the greats, if not the greatest. You know what I mean? Yep. Straight up and down. If you look at his career and what he's done, um, I love Nas. I love Nas. He's one of my favorite favorite MCs. Um, so so, but and he inspires me as well. But at this point, you're still focused on music. You're but not. See, I'm, thinking, yeah, I'm still focused yeah. on music. I'm not thinking anything about entrepreneurship. Right. You know what I'm saying? Building startups, technology, none of that. So so Ben embraces me. We talk, and I ask him to follow me so I could direct message him. Yeah. He follows me. I go in, I talk to him, I hit him all kinds of tweets and just saying to him, basically, here's my life story. I read about you. You know, I was going to initially ask you to invest in my music company, but now that I have this opportunity, will you will you mentor me? As the old adage goes. And you realize how much more value there is in the mentorship side than just giving you money. That's, exactly. That's invaluable to and, get and, that kind of time. And, and as the old adage goes, you give a man a fish, you feed him for a day, teach a man how to fish, you feed him for a lifetime. And that being said, um, I asked him to teach me how to fish. And he sent me his email, his email address, said, you have any questions, reach out to me. And he was like, and I also shared with him, uh, I was raising uh, money through a Kickstarter at the time, yeah, yeah. raising like 7K. I shared that with him so he could see my music and see my potential as an artist. You're raising money on Kickstarter for an album. Yeah, you for an album. an album yeah. you wanted to produce. Exactly. So um, um, I shared the link with him just so he could see the music and, you know, yeah. see the level of my, of my, um, of my artistry and and who I was as an artist, and he came back. He told me he put some money on my Kickstarter as well. So you know, and it wasn't even it was about the the amount he put on it. And I was only raising seven k, which isn't a lot of money, but it's a lot of money when you know when you know you no longer sell drugs. Yeah, you know what I'm saying. Yeah, yeah, it is. So um, he put a little money on it, and you know, he blessed me, and I was just moved by that, and I was inspired to write a song about him. It was called Venture Capitalist, like Ben Hearns. Is the first virtue. That's pretty universal. Yo, I'm a venture capitalist like Ben Horowitz. Little tennis rap that I spent with Jim's glorious. Ben is spent more of this. So the point of my story is, I came from crack to rap to corner offices. I came to spit a poem, so I'm sitting in silicone or silicon. Valley, valley with illidons. My vision zone, melatonin like them killer cons. Dying, I kill it lonely. The witnesses, I respond to any threat, any stress. Get ready, set for heavy fire and chance. Get met with many deaths. I'm trying to capitalize on any venture to rise. Expand it. Enterprise, need I mention my size? It's globalized, culture rise with a total vibe that hits with total surprise. Beyond the localized, I'm off the planet, but my reach is so organic. The deeper my core brand is, the people get more frantic for market share. Cause the red carpet is here, the feds wanna stop a career from popping in. Cause the mandates, it translates to influence. I'm just trying to win, so it's just a little spin to it. I'm on my venture capitalist like Ben Horowitz. Legal tennis rap that I spent with Jim's glorious. Ben is spent more of this, so the point of my story is.
I wrote the song, shared it with him. So, you did it at his birthday, right? Then we did a video. Yeah, well, yeah, yeah I, was a, I, I dropped the video on his birthday as a, as a, um, as a, as a birthday present. And just, you know, just reaching out to him and just showing love, man. You know what I mean? He showed yeah. me love. So I met him in New York for the first time. Him and his wife, Felicia. Also, also very gracious. She's a saint. Big, everything big, oh, I read man. about her. She, she's a big supporter of mine's. Uh, oh, that's good. One of the biggest supporters of mine at the time when I was doing, you know, raising the money for the Kickstarter. She, him, her, and Ben were, were largest um, pledges. She pledged more than Ben actually. So you know what I'm saying? She was like, at the, <laughs> she was actually at the lead. You know what I mean? But uh, Ben's like, yo, meet Felicia. You know, she's 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 one of your biggest supporters and fans. And what's so ill about it? When I sent him the song, he actually played it for Nas on the way to South by Southwest. So when they got there. So Nas was like, yo, he liked the B, like the lyrics, and I got skills. So um, Ben was excited about that. I was excited about it, yeah, which is cool. That's cool. He played it for Nas. Um, but Ben really, really loved that song, and he played for everybody in the early, in the early days of, of our relationship building. And when I first wrote the song, he played it for everybody. And everybody wondered how I came up with all this information about him and learned about him. But you know, I read about him, did some research, put it on in a lyrical format. And another thing about that song, if you notice, I changed the format. Normally songs are three verses... Maybe an intro, two hooks, and maybe an outro or a or, or, uh, closing hook. Uh, maybe sometimes there's an intro hook as well. But either way, in this particular song, the way I, way I formatted it, there's usually 16-bar um, verses, 8-bar hooks. But I took the 8-bar hook and made it 4 bars. So I said it once and went right back into the next verse. So that allowed me to keep it under 4 minutes and add 4 verses versus only 3 verses. It's it's the only rap song, only song period you're gonna find on YouTube that uses the word venture capitalist and Ben Horowitz. I guarantee you, you're not gonna find anything else unless somebody's yeah. ripping you off. But it is it is amazing because again, still at this point, you're focused on music. You're not focused on tech. Nah, not so. How do you go no. from that to being an intern? So um, yeah. So so things happen. So so what happened was due to Ben. Ben opened up the door for me, and everybody you know started recognizing who I was, my talent. And you know, TechCrunch did a, did a, did a story on me mm-hmm. dropping the video for Ben's birthday. Um, so, so that a lot of publicity around that, a lot of the tech tech community started taking notice. So, I was on the tech radar in 2014, real heavily because of Ben. So, from there, I just started thinking a year a year being around Ben, being invited to Silicon Valley, being invited to his house, meeting all these people. The, the, what I started realizing is that what resonated with them the most, even though we're from two different spectrums of, 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 of life, socioeconomic backgrounds, was that they resonated with me as a human being in the sense they, they connected with human potential. They connected with human triumph. They connected with spiritual principles such as, such as you know, determination, ambition, all these gifts that we all possess whether we utilize them or leverage them in different ways, we all possess them, right? In some form or some fashion. Um, it's like it's like our toolkit, right? Well, without the hustle in Silicon Valley and we're in New York, so Silicon Alley, you don't survive. You, nah, don't, you don't, man. You just don't survive. It's, this is this is a bloody business. Yeah, yeah. So, so, so that being said, I saw they connected with the human story of me. Yeah. So that so I was like, okay, how do I create a product that that envelops my story, right? How or how do I let my story envelop the product? And how do I create something that has social impact? So at first, you know, I, I came up with it, with, a, with a, you know, like everybody was coming up with an app. Came up with an app that kind of. You, you did charity. I remember that you 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 started a, a charity program. Yeah, yeah, I was doing yeah hope. Yep. I, I wanted to do hope, hope at first. Um, hope was um helping oppressed people elevate. Hope through hip hop. Yeah. 
Came out the hood with better dreams, with better scenes, the sceneries I could see to be all that I could be, and more. So I explore, observing everything I saw. Every lesson was raw, every blessing absorbed. No handouts, your man's out. With grams out on the block with no plan route, so that ain't paying out. In due time, the road to be mine. I kept my eyes on the prize and realized that everything that I survived, chosen fools I was meant to be here. What a blessing to breathe air. Believe you can achieve when you be there. Yeah, I thought I would grow rich or coke bricks. What you expect from a broke kid, they go get. Determined mind is so set to blow next. With flow sick with a cold spit and no sweat. I persevered through my worst years, incarcerated. All praise is due to the most high. Thank God I made it. That was kind of what I wanted to do at first. And then I realized that, you know, I wanted I wanted to get into tech more. I wanted to do something more tech. I knew I could I had I had more skills and talents than just emceeing and being a rapper. And I, I knew I had much more, to, much more to offer. I knew I had more value. You're right. So I said, how do I mine that value out of me in the tech space? So then I came up with the app, and I came and I fell into FinTech. And, and you hit FinTech hard. I, it was so funny. I got an email. So we both know Scarlet Cyber. Love yeah, Scarlet. Scarlet. That's what introduced us. Yeah. Yeah, Scarlet. Shout out Scarlet. Out of the blue, I got, an e- I got an email from her saying, hey, you need to meet this guy, uh, Divine. And I remember going, Divine who? And she goes, no, you need to meet Divine. Just Google. Just Google. <laughs> Which <laughs> yeah. I did. And I started laughing. And we traded some emails. Because you were, I think at the time, I think you were trying to figure out where you wanted to go. Because you were asking about prepaid. Yeah, at the yeah time, trying to understand right? the prepaid space. Yeah. yeah. Which, uh, it, it, it was so, I, mean, I just remember that. That was probably two years ago now. Yeah, a couple years ago I've known you, yeah. Yeah, it's been a little while. Yeah. It is funny how much music ties into the tech space. I introduced him to a friend of mine, Doug Bobbinhouse, who was a lead singer for Sunsod and Half. Hey, right. Doug, I love you, by hey, the Doug, way, what up? who looks like he's five years old and he's not. <laughs> um, but yeah, I've met so many people that have a music background. Here, here's, here's why I like you, though. I know I'm a networker. That's what, that's what I do. And I know so many people in this fintech space. So like Scarlett, like Ramona Ortega, yeah. right? like Doug. And all of them keep coming back to me and said, "Divine's for real, right? This is a real thing, and character matters." Oh wow! It really, what did I know that? That's crazy. Well, I'm telling you, thanks for sharing that. But they are right. I mean, Ramona Ortega, we love you, Ramona. Pure character, yeah. Um, And and she is she's here's somebody who's walked away from law, right? Yeah. A lot. I mean, she could be making serious serious money. And yeah. she's focused on helping other people. Yeah, I mean, that's what my, she does. My, yeah, my money, my future. Yeah, that's, I mean, that's, that's, that's what she does. And it's the same with what you're doing. You've got, here's the funny part. How many sticks you got in the fire right now? Because we got Black Tech. Let's talk about Black Tech. Yeah, so we got Black FinTech. Yep. Yep. Black, um, it's spelled B-L-A-K. Yep. It's an acronym that stands for Building Leverage, Acquiring Knowledge. Which is, there's your life story. Yeah, right? yeah exactly. It's a which, process that I've always used in my life. Which works. So Black FinTech. We got the Black Card. Yep. So we so I partnered with a company called Mochify. Mobility Capital Finance. So here's the difference, and I had to research this, right? So my background, folks, I did prepaid at TSIS. I know prepaid in and out. I actually worked for TSIS, and we processed the rush card. Um, and all of you that gave Russell Simmons crap for the rush card, get off yourself, all right? By the way, I get annoyed at that. The, what I like, the difference between you, though, and, and Russell Simmons a little bit, and by the way, we talk about open banking all the time right now. That's one of the hottest things right now. APIs right. and open banking. Exactly. I was working with Russell Simmons on that card back in 2009, 2010. Wow. They were doing APIs. Right. They basically told Tesla's, you get the platform, we want the API suite. Right. They were five years ahead of the curve. Wow. And that was a prepaid card. Yeah. Know, Russell Simmons, cut me some slack, everybody. All right. I get annoyed if yeah, you haven't yeah. told, if you can't tell on that. What I like about you is you're doing your own processing. Yeah. With Mosaic. Yeah. That's a that's a huge step, man. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's a lot different than a lot of the other solutions out there. 
Well, yeah. So um, we were able to. So basically, what happened was, I I, I had to pivot the company. Our initial our initial play was, we had this um this platform that was built by my CTO. Yeah. At the time, he built this platform, but he had sold it. He sold the platform, but what happened was, we were trying to purchase back the platform or the rights to use the platform, which it would allow us to then have a um basically a proxy bank. Yeah. We'd be doing the processing. We'd be doing the program, the program as a program manager, and then we would just tie into a bank. But we would actually, um, as they say, this would sit inside the bank, so we were able to actually issue um, uh, checklist debit accounts or checklist checking accounts, yep. or what have you, and then um, we could run our program with that. I actually got the, the second largest African American owned bank in the country, MNF, Mechanics and Farmers Bank. The deal in the phone through last minute, so that was like I was like a year in on that deal, kind of like. Took me, took, caught me off guard. I had to figure out how my, I had to figure out my pivot, how I was gonna pivot. <laughs> Welcome to the fintech yeah, life, man, divine. Yeah, man. So yep. I had to f- figure out the pivot, and you know, and and, and I kind of got, kind of got, you know, I kind of got discouraged for a minute. I had to pick myself back up. I did some research. I found another African American owned company right here in New York and Harlem, um, Mocafi Mobility Capital Finance. Partnered with them. They already had a, um, they was already working with a, with a white label prepaid uh, solution. So we just tied into them. And now I'm working with them, and I'm heading there. Basically, I'm heading there, their uh, incarceration, informally incarcerated population. That is a massive program. That is, again, we talked about the U.S. Right, the number of folks that we have in prisons, and and actually under the current administration, talking about uh, jacking up um, these terms again. Right, yeah. going back to the, the early days of war on drugs, right. which, um, again, we go a whole nother show yeah. on that. We gotta work with folks. Here's what's funny, right? I had a guy reach out to me who I went to high school with. Um, I haven't seen in 30 years. Um, he became a, a day trader, did really well. He made a crap load of money, and uh, he got into drugs, right? Selling, wow. dealing. He, okay, he, yeah. he did a couple years, right? Reached out to me. Okay. Um, and it's fascinating, right? Here's a guy that again got into day trading. He's in Chicago, doing great and everything else, and then has gone and done time and coming out trying to rebuild himself too, right? Right. And find that path. And I think working with folks coming out of prison and while they're in prison, um, there's so many programs around coding, right? Right, yeah, exactly. Um, and, and STEM studies and everything else. It is so important that we get folks back in to, the, yeah. you know, and, and, and contributing and, and giving back into the communities. You want to make the communities work. You want to get past crap like Charlottesville, right? Oh, we can sit here all day, right? Exactly. Um, we, <laughs> we've seen what's happened over the past couple of years, right? No, we crazy. haven't moved forward and we've no, got to. Crazy. And tech and money will It's almost help. like we're regressing. Like, it's, it's always well, it's not, I don't even know it's, it's almost if we're regressing. I think it's just being revealed. We had talked about. Yeah, yeah, man. Uh, it's not that it hasn't been there. Yeah, it's always been there. It's it, there. Now we're seeing it though because yeah, now we're seeing, seeing it yeah. via, can, you know, the yeah. cameras, everything's there and we're just seeing what really was going on. And so what you're doing with that the motivational side that you're doing? Yeah, so yeah. So, what do you so, call yourself? So, you got to add on. What yeah. is it? I, gotta, I wrote it down. I laughed. I love what you called yourself on, on the inspiration side. The urban entrepreneur? Urban entrepreneur. Yeah. I love that. That's a good title. Yeah, I'm the man. urban entrepreneur. Exactly. So yeah, we got a podcast we're doing with that. So, you know, that's coming soon. But, but to, to talk, we'll talk about more about what I'm doing, and in, especially in the, um, in the criminal justice reform space, um, you know, over 600,000 Inmates will be released into society. Are released every year into back into society. Six hundred thousand. Yes, over six hundred thousand. There you go. Every year from state and federal prisons. So when you look at that population coming home, and whether they're not rehabilitated, whether they have no job skills, right? That's an influx of crime, influx of violence, and different and, and, and a 
myriad of other things that they could possibly be doing. But what if we could harness harness these individuals, put them on a pathway towards education, put them on a pathway towards employment, and to become productive citizens and break the cycle. Exactly, break, break the cycle. That damn cycle. So so now so now being that I'm a formerly incarcerated individual, I'm now an advocate against mass incarceration and for criminal justice reform. Initially, I never had never taken that taken that role because I never considered myself a victim of the penal system or of the criminal justice system. Um, in retrospect, I started realizing, you know what I was? I was sentenced under the, Dracon- under the draconian crack law during the Reaganomics era, right? Crack cocaine era. I was sentenced under the 100 to 1 ratio, right? Crack cocaine versus uh, powder cocaine. Um, so, And those, those laws are racially motivated, right? Um, so if you think about it, I, I've always been a victim. But because I was so strong and made it through that prison prison sentence and my mom was so strong, I never considered myself a victim. But now I started to reflect on it and say, you know what? I could use my platform. I have the visibility. I could use that to help others and speak yep. out against these injustices. And that being said, that ended up leading me to uh, Chris Redlitz and Beverly Parente, who are the co-founders of a program called TLM, The Last Mile. And TLM started out as an entrepreneurship program in San Quentin State Prison in California. It then, it since has turned into a coding program where they actually teach inmates how to code without any connection to the internet. And see, to me, the value in that is massive. And look, I'm, I'm not saying that we're not responsible for the choices we make. All of us are in, in our lives, right? But the, the punishment has to meet the crime, Absolutely. right? I mean, and, Absolutely. And I think that's what's huge, right? Yeah. Before everybody starts spazzing out, we're going to listen to this, right? It has to make sense, and it has to... The goal of prison, you, you got to get the punishment component out of it because if we, all we do is focus on punishment, we're never going to break the wheel, right? right I, sound exactly. like, I sound like Game of Thrones now. The cycle isn't going to bust if that's all we're focused on, right? Right. And, and we've got to move beyond that. And, and, and as a society, you would hope as a society gets better and better and better, it figures that out. Yeah. So, so, so between you know, Black FinTech, the partnership with MochaFi, to where we're now able to bring the Black MochaFi card to the market, it's, it's now available. It's, you know, and and, and, it's, and it's, such, it's so affordable as opposed to other cards that are on the market. And me specifically, Black FinTech, initially are targeting the African-American demographic. Um, so I'm really, really happy about those that that partnership. Well, you got a lot of Black fintech. Go to Black fintech. Look at the site and look at the partnerships you have. Yeah, almost a majority of them are all on education. Yeah, we so we have a, yeah we have a, we have a strong huge part a strong, of it. Strong, strong um a social impact initiative around financial literacy. But we took it a step further as well as and, and then as well as doing entrepreneurship education. Well, yeah, so so black I want to say right? I exactly mean, Black Wealth. Multi, We're doing multi, a Black Wealth platform yeah. that 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 where we curate uh, financial literacy and entrepreneurship education um, content in micro format, so it's easy to digest. I mean, because the demographic going after may or may not have you know a twelfth grade education, maybe yeah. some college. So we really want to make it easy to where it's digestible, and we do that in the vein of of being a, the urban entrepreneur, the upwardly mobile, you know, forward thinking, future yeah. high achiever courageous and bold risk taker who's success driven that's what the urban entrepreneur represents it represents who i am and what i've done and how do i how do i create a pathway and a framework for other people to duplicate my success from survival mindset to living mindset yeah i love that line man because it is it's more than just day to day right exactly it's getting past that and actually living a life and 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 when we talk about living we talk about being able to take your children 
Maybe to Disneyland. Yeah. Maybe to you know take your your wife and your family on a vacation somewhere. Being able to afford that. Being able to optimize your financial life in a way that you can live. Because people in these communities, individuals in these communities, are just surviving. And I've been there. I've been surviving. When you when you survive, when you live in a survival mindset, you're living one of desperation. You'll do anything to get that dollar. I've done it. I lived that life, right? From 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 undermining my own my own existence, undermining my own freedom, risking my life, right? Risking my life and my freedom to make money so I could just eat, to make money so I could clothe my child, to make money so I could clothe myself. All those years that I hustled drugs, had I had financial literacy, had I had entrepreneurship education at a, at a at a at a young early age, I could have thrived, and I would have been I would have been living. Not just simply trying to survive. So here you go, folks. This is easy. I started it with these three words, Victor, Damon, Lombard, yeah. divine. Yeah. See, somebody had to say it, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And get yeah. it back out there, folks. It's a name to remember, and it's a name to watch. All right, divine? It's been fun, man. Thanks. Yeah, thank you for having me. Not a problem. This show is crafted for you by the folks at 11FS. We're building banks for the future. Find out more at 11FS.com. If we hooked you with this episode, be sure to leave us a review on iTunes. Every star helps. Today's episode was edited by Michael Bailey and produced by Laura Watkins, Ollie Judge, and myself. I'm Sam Mall, and this has been Connection Interrupted. Thanks for listening.